Turn to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, and uh, Lord willing, we will finish up chapter 1 tonight. We'll begin reading in verse number 15, down through verse number 26. Verse 15 says, and, and in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of the names together were about an hundred and twenty. Men and brethren, the Scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as that, that field is called in their proper tongue a keldama, that is to say, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let none, no man dwell therein, and his bishopric, bishopric let another take. Wherefore, of these men which have companied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto the same day that He was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of His resurrection. And they were appointed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether thou whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for once again an opportunity to meet together and to study your word. And once again, Lord, we ask you that you would meet with us and teach us and instruct us from your word, that you would help us to gain understanding and wisdom about your ways and about your uh, your, your knowledge, and about your will, Lord, as we see your hand in these narratives and we see what those before us have done. Lord, help these things to help uh, hone and, and, uh, and strengthen our own uh, walk with you, Lord. We just commit this service to you. We ask for your blessing and help in Jesus' name. Amen. So last time we saw in, uh, in uh, this chapter about Judas Iscariot, and Judas Iscariot is a, uh, is a blot, really. Now, it's not an unexpected blot. It's not like the devil won a victory in some way by Judas being there, although he thought he did. Um, the Lord said over and over and over that he knew that one of the disciples, one, in fact, it was prophesied in the, 49, uh, the 41st Psalm that there would be one of the close acquaintances and and. Uh, and uh, friends of the Lord Jesus who would lift his heel up against him. And we, we studied that last time just as a, by way of review. In John chapter 6, the Bible says that Judas was a devil. I would like to read that just in your hearing, just so we can kind of let that sink in a little bit. John 6 verse number 70 says this. It says, Jesus answered, 
Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? One of you is a devil. And we talked about that last time, how that Judas Iscariot was the devil, the devil himself, in the midst of the ministry of Christ. The devil was in the inner circle of the Lord. You know, because there was a wider circle, even in Acts chapter 1. The number of the disciples in verse 15 was about 120 at that point. But within the inner circle of the 12, the devil had gotten in, had infiltrated that inner circle. And that's always what he's doing. That's always what he's doing. In fact, what's, what's interesting about that is when... when uh, well, let's just pause on that. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. But we also saw that Judas was not recognized among, uh, as a devil among the disciples. You remember they said, is it I? Is it I? At the, at the Last Supper. Judas was not a true believer. And that's also in John chapter 13. Judas was covetous. He was a thief. And he stole from the Lord's treasury. Uh, Judas was with Christ from the baptism of John until the garden. So Judas was someone who had seen and heard everything. He had been baptized uh, either by John or, or by Christ or one of the other disciples, perhaps, probably by John, I imagine. And uh, he had seen all of Christ's miracles, heard of all of Christ's teaching, preached the word himself, cast out devils, and done miracles himself. And yet he was an imposter. He was an imposter. We should not... As I said last time we studied this, I guess it was last uh, Wednesday, we should not uh, be under any illusions that, uh, or be surprised when someone from among God's people is found out to be an imposter. The good thing is that they are found out. You know what? God has given us ways in the Scripture to identify people like that. Now, it's not always easy, and it always causes a problem. But it is no surprise that the devil has his people implanted within God's people to stir problems, to cause issues. In fact, can anybody think of one of the problems that we know of that Judas Iscariot caused even before he betrayed the Lord? Does anybody know of an example of a problem or a division that he created? Yes, sir. Exactly. You remember she brought in that, that, uh, that ointment that was extremely expensive. And she just broke it and, air quote, wasted it on the Lord. And Judas was, not just Judas, but Judas was the ringleader that was criticizing what this woman was doing, which was an act of worship. Judas was the one criticizing this lady. So he, he had problems, and even with all of his problems, even with all of his problems, he was not recognized. He was not recognized as a devil. He was the devil. And so we get down here and, and uh, verse number, number 18. We'll read a little bit more about Judas. It says, Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst and his, all his bowels gushed out. Now, I think what's reasonable, we talk about bust, burst asunder, that means his body was broken such that in the midst, that means in the middle, such that his innards came out of his body. Now, 
Now, we know that the Bible says he, he went out and hanged himself. And so what, what is commonly believed, and I think it's probably true, especially knowing all the craggy areas. One, one commentator I, I was reading about this uh, described having been to uh, Israel, to the place in Jerusalem, all the crags and all the cliffs near there. He said there, there are plenty of places. It is very easy to see one of these trees that overhangs these cliffs that are 30 or 40 feet tall that Judas would hang himself on one of these places and either because his body decomposed or either because people cut him down, once they found him, he just fell and, you know, the result was what we read here in verse number, uh, verse number 18. It's a, uh, he, he, Judas was a man whose death was in infamy. But you know what? His death... And everything that happened to him was prophesied. So let's look at a couple places where that uh, actually was prophesied. Look at Ze hold your place here and look at Zechariah. That's at the end of the Old Testament, chapter 11. Zechariah chapter 11 and verse number 12. Now, remember last time we, we studied this on last uh, Wednesday, uh, we saw how, the, the, how the, the principle or the concept of money comes up, even in the, the betrayal of Christ. Why was one of the features of Judas as a betrayer and an imposter was his love of money? In other words, Judas wanted to be where he was so that he could steal from God. That's the bottom line. And, and you see this thread. You see this thread, but it's also a thread that goes way back into the prophecies about Christ. Look at this in verse number, 11, uh, verse number 12 of Zechariah chapter 11. The Bible says, And I said unto them, If you think good, give me my price. Now, at this point in history, this is not a good situation. Ze the people of Israel are not... Are not uh, are not in favor of Zechariah. They're not friendly to him. If you think good, give me my price. So in other words, if you said, give me my price, say you're selling a car and you say, well, give me a price. The price that they're going to give you is what? Is the estimation of the value of that object, right? You say, give me a price and they look at your car and they kick the tire and they look for all the dents and then they say, well, I'll give you 10,000 for it. That's the, the estimation of that, the value of that. And this is what the, the prophet is saying to Israel, he's saying, give me my price. What do, how, how do you value me? And if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver, the price of a common slave, as they say. And the Lord said unto me, cast it unto the potter. And a goodly price that I was prized out of them, and I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. All right? Now, let's move over to Matthew. Just, just keep that in your mind there, and let's look at Matthew chapter 26 and 27 real quick. And then we'll come back to Acts. Matthew chapter 26, verse 14 says this. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will ye give me, and I will deliver him unto you? 
talking about Jesus. And they covenanted, covenant, somebody help me there. Covenant, covenanted, thank you. Covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. Notice the amount is the same as in Zechariah. That's the prophecy. And from that time, he saw opportunity to betray him. Here's what's interesting. It was not the priests that came to Judas, but Judas went to the priests. That's the significance of why the devil was in that circle. You see, it wasn't, it wasn't they were trying to get at Jesus. It came from within. It was it, the, the ministry of Christ, I'm speaking from a human perspective, was destroyed from within the circle. He sought them out for a, me, a measly 30 pieces of silver. That shows, but, but you notice, that shows how low Judas Iscariot valued Christ. He would sell the very blood, the life of Christ, for just a measly little amount of money. That is how much he, he estimated the value of Christ. See, Judas was not a believer. Judas, Judas held, to some degree, held Christ in contempt. And that's remarkable considering he had seen everything and he had done everything. Look at chapter 27. So at this point, Judas is doing the work of the devil. Look at chapter 27, verse 3. After the fact now, Judas has already betrayed the Lord in the garden. Verse 3 says, Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw what was, uh, that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. Now, this is not biblical repentance. All this means is, and this is where you got to be careful with the words of the Bible, because sometimes these words are used kind of, as you might say, like a generic, in a generic way, not specifically referring to Judas recognized he had sinned against God and wanted to get right with God. That wasn't the case with Judas. Judas felt remorse, but that was it. And this was not godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation. This was just simple remorse. He felt bad about what he did. And that's not the same as repentance, biblical repentance. You see, his repentance did include accepting blame, and his repentance did include works of repentance. What do I mean? Fruit of repentance. How so? He took the money back. He didn't just feel bad and keep the money. He took the money back and threw it, threw it back at their feet. But see, his repentance lacked any hope of God's mercy. That's the difference. He did not, he did not show remorse so that he could, be, he, he could be delivered and seek God's mercy. No, he, he, he showed remorse that was hopeless. There was no hope in God for him, and he knew that. Verse 4 says, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. Notice that. Judas, who was a man who had, who had according to the, the requirements for his replacement in Acts chapter 1, Judas was a man who had been with Christ all the way since the baptism of John, all the way until he was betrayed in the garden. Judas, of all people, was well-suited, having seen Christ in public and in private, heard every, all the words he spoke. He was well-suited to pass a judgment onto whether Jesus was sincere and real and true, and if what he said was the way he truly was. He knew Christ publicly and privately. He knew if Jesus was innocent or guilty of these things. 
But notice what happens in verse 4. And so this is a good example of when you have the testimony of an enemy. The testimony of an enemy often can be, can be very effective to prove the trustworthiness of the, per, of the person in, in question. If an enemy agrees with, with the person in question, you know, because an enemy is not naturally going to defend someone or try to justify them. An enemy is going to be looking for problems. That's one reason why Pilate, when he said, I find no fault in this man, that's why it's so, so significant. If there was fault, he would have found it and condemned Jesus on those grounds. <clears throat> Verse 4, And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. One author I read said this, and it's true. They didn't care about Judas. Judas was merely an instrument, right? And when they were done with the instrument, did they care the effect of what that, had, that would have on Judas, on the, on the instrument that they had used? No, they used him and abused him and threw him out like trash because that's what the world does. That's what the devil does. He uses people to accomplish his ends, and when he's done, he throws you out like trash. He doesn't care about your end. So Judas was used of the devil. The devil was actually in the heart of Judas. And you know what? The devil didn't care what the end of Judas was. He said, Shh, that ain't our problem, these priests say. These are children of the devil, actually. If you follow the ministry of Christ, these leaders are children of the devil, what Jesus said to them. He said, it ain't our problem. Get out of here. It's your problem. Verse 5, And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Verse 6, And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful for, uh, for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. You know, it's amazing how, how often religious people strain at gnats and swallow camels. They, they're so scrupulous to the utmost to avoid wrongdoing about small matters regarding the offering and whether money and the source of money and how it should be used while literally committing murder like actual murder, straining at gnats, swallowing camels, and not seeing, not seeing the contradiction in there, blinded, blinded. And that's what was happening here. Verse 7, I read verse 7, they bought the potter's field to bury strangers in. Verse 8, wherefore that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Verse 9, then was fulfilled what we just read, that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying that they, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord appointed me. You see this? Judas, that's what, that's what we read in Acts. In Acts, the Bible says this, this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity. Judas, the money that Judas brought and then, and then threw down to the priest is the same money that they in turn took and bought the potter's field. A potter's field would be something like a field that a potter, that is a man who makes clay 
earthenware, a field where he would like harvest the clay. So it would be a field that would have clay. And once that clay's exhausted, he would sell it because it was useless to him. It was just an old throwaway piece of ground, basically. And so Judas, giving that money to the, the, pre, the, uh, the priest there, and they in turn bought the, uh, the field. So Judas bought the field. His money was used to buy the field, which is the field of blood. Now what's interesting, remember, I don't want to lose you, but remember, what did those 30 pieces of silver represent? It represented the children of Israel's estimation of Jesus, how much they valued him. They thought he was worth only 30 pieces of silver, which is, a, is as much as you would give for a field. In fact, if you think about it, I mean, can you think of a piece of land that you would, that you, would, <clears throat> that you think would be equivalent to the, the value of your own child? or your brother, or your sister. You see, it's crazy. It's, but see, that amount, what it shows is the children of Israel did hold Christ in utter contempt. In fact, Isaiah 53 says this. You've heard this verse. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Listen to this. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. They held Christ in contempt. And not only that, <clears throat> not only that, in verse number, in our, in our passage in Matthew that we already read, the verse number 10, the potter's field that was, was, was purchased was interesting because it is real estate. Real estate is not like other kinds of property. Real estate is immobile. So there you have the potter's field, which they say you can go to to this day. There's a monastery. Of course, there's a monastery on everything in Israel. They can't just leave it alone. They build a monastery on it. It doesn't make any sense. If I, was, if I, if I owned the, the potter's field, for instance, I would want to leave it as it is. You know, I wouldn't want to tear it up and build a monastery on it, but that's what they do, assuming that's the right place. So you can go to that field, but you know what that field represents? That field is a... Is a, is a Example, a physical example of real estate that represents the contempt that the children of Israel had for Christ, for their Messiah. It is a permanent, because it's real estate, testimony to the contempt the Jews had for Jesus. And it's still there. It's still there to this day. Now going back to Acts chapter 1, verse number <clears throat> Verse number 20. For it is written in the book of the Psalm of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let, let another take. So this is quoted out of two different passages in Psalms. I'll read them to you just, just for time's sake. Psalm 69, verse 25. It's actually two separate passages that he kind of combines together. Psalm 69, verse number 25 says this. In the context, it says this, They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table become a snare. Let their eyes be darkened. I'm skipping a little bit. Pour out thine indignation upon them, and let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their habitation be desolate, and let none dwell in their tents. That's what he's quoting. Then he, then he jumps to Psalm 109, and this is the part I want us to see. Verse 
Verse number eight says this, let his days be few and let another take his office. So this is a messianic psalm talking about Jesus. Now here's why this is important. Peter says, Peter reads this, he's he's talking about Judas and he gives at least three prophecies about Judas from the Old Testament. And he says, this is what was going to happen. Judas fulfilled what was going to happen and he got what he deserved and he fulfilled the scripture and he bought a parcel of land that's still here and the Jews to this day, in, in Peter's day, they know this piece of land is called the field of blood a testimony to their contempt of Christ. But then he gets to this psalm and he says, his bishopric, that is his his ministry, let another take. So based upon this verse, you know what Peter suggests? We need to replace Judas because it says, his bishopric let another take. So upon that basis, Peter's like, we need, verse 21, wherefore these men which have company with us, and he says, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection? And this leads to this question. We know that they selected the 12th apostle. And and this is where the question comes up. Was the one that they selected, Matthias, was he the actual 12th apostle or was Paul the 12th apostle? People argue about this. But I think there is a definitive answer. I think Peter is acting in faith. Peter is taking the scripture and he's saying, all right, this is what the Bible said about Judas. He fulfilled all those things. And look, a verse says someone needs to take his place. Let's read verse 21 and 2. Wherefore of these men, which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. This is what you might call the requirements of the twelve. In other words, this twelfth person had to be a had to be with Christ from the very beginning, the baptism of John, all the way up through his resurrection and had to have seen Jesus resurrected. Remember, there was over 500 people that saw Jesus raised from the dead at one time. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. So there were a lot of people there, both men and women. But the requirement to be this 12th apostle was that they had to be with Jesus the whole time, just like Judas was. That then means that Paul can't be that person. Because that's not, Paul was not there. Paul was not at the baptism of John. Paul was not a disciple of Christ. And Paul did not see Jesus raised from the dead until later. And so that also, that that means Paul can't be the 12th apostle. These are the requirements of a person named to be among the 12. And you know what? The 12 apostles would be significant later especially when it comes to the decisions of the church in the book of Acts. And in, the Reve- in Revelation chapter 21, there's that new Jerusalem, and there's, it has foundations, right? The names of the 12 apostles are, will adorn the wall of new Jerusalem. And one of those will be Matthias. All right? Let's look a little bit further. Verse 22, and well, we read verse 22 already. Verse number uh, 23 and they appointed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias, and they prayed. This, 
I want you to understand, they're trying to figure out what God wants them to do. There has been a breach. There has been a, there, there has been a, uh, uh, one of the 12 has perished now. One of the 12 is missing. There's, a, there's something missing in their ministry. And they know that. So they're just trying to figure out what God's will is. Number one, they got the scripture. That's in verse, uh, verse number 20. Number two, they seek God about it and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen. See, their prayer indicates the fact that they are taking it to God shows that they want to do God's will. They are trying to do God's will. And ultimately, it means they will do God's will. How many of you, see, that's one of the danger signs when you know you're messing up, is if you won't take it to God. You know, and a lot of people will take something to God and they go to God in prayer and they just go through the motions because they already have the answer they want, but they're just going through the motions to make it seem like, you know, as if God is fooled, and He's not. But if, if you have a matter and you have something you want to do and you're not willing to take it to God in honesty, even if you think you know what the answer might or might not be, the fact that you don't take it to God shows that your heart is not in the right place to get a clear direction from God. See, when we come to God about His will and what He wants us to do, we just have to lay before Him an, a blank page. We, we can't lay before Him a form with, with fill in the blanks and, and then He's obligated to fill in certain things that we have predetermined. That's not how it works. We have to come to God with a blank page and say, Lord, what do you want? And sometimes that's hard to do. But that's what they're doing. Thus, an indicator that they're really seeking God's will. And how many of you have ever prayed about a decision and even up through the decision where you had to make a decision, you weren't exactly sure that the decision was the right decision, even though you did seek God about it? I mean, have any of you ever, do, ever done that? Maybe a decision is foisted upon you. You have no choice. You have to decide. I'm kind of like that right now in my life. I have a decision that I have to make. And sometimes decisions are forced upon us. We have to make the decision. We seek God about it with all our heart like these are doing. We, we ask God, but we're not totally, it's not like, you know, sometimes God gives us clear direction beforehand. And then sometimes we just, the best we know how, we take all things into consideration, trying to follow God and follow the scripture with all of our heart. And we make that decision kind of crossing our fingers and holding our breath in faith. Right? I mean, have you ever done that? You didn't know how it was going to, if it was, if it was for sure, if it was the right decision. You know, we do that. But you know what? The fact that you seek God about it first, it's almost like, and just speaking from experience here, it's almost like the fact that you have sought God, God is on the tail end of that matter saying, don't worry, it's going to end up just like I want it, even if you don't know how it is at this moment. You don't know how it's all going to turn out right now, but because you sought God about it, He ordered your steps in ways that you had no idea so that in the end result, is it just exactly what He wanted. We don't have to know what God is doing in order for His will to be done. That's the hard part. We don't have to know everything that He's doing. We just have to seek him and, and ask him about it like these did. 
He says, Lord, thou knowest the hearts of all men. Show whither of these two thou hast chosen. That he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. Some people think that Judas was just kind of a wayward Christian. He wasn't. Judas was a devil. Judas died and went to hell. Judas was wicked. Judas was a thief. He just had the facade of a believer. Verse 26, And they gave forth their lots. And the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now what is casting lots? In our our day, we would just say this is a drawing. It's basically equivalent to a drawing. Now, they cast it, but the idea behind a a lot was it was a totally random process. You know what? It's an interesting fact that this is the last occurrence of the the practice of casting lots in the Bible. This is the last one. There are no more after this. But you know what? They prayed. They prayed. Peter had the word of God to direct them. They prayed. They submitted it to God. And then they did this process, which might seem a little bit odd to us, but they did. They cast the lots by faith because they already sought God about it. But you see, they understood and believed what the Proverbs teach, that chance is God's domain. All right, this is what Proverbs 16.33 says. You've probably heard this verse before. The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. What does that mean? The lot is cast into the lap. You might say the raffle ticket (laughs) is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing, that is the arrangement. In other words, how it ends up is of the Lord. When something, is of chance, so when something happens of chance, it is not random chance. Random chance doesn't exist. God is in the area of random chance. To us, from our perspective, it seems random, but it's not. Now, we might not understand. In fact, we probably will not understand why something random happens. But that's where God is, the secret things, or- orchestrating these things. Let me show you. A few examples of this. Look at the book of Ruth, if you would. We'll try to hurry to the end here. We're almost finished. Ruth, right before Psalms, or right before actually 1 Samuel. Ruth chapter 2, verse 3. Of course, we know Ruth is going out to glean... Among the reapers, verse 3 of chapter 2, And she went and came, Ruth did, and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And her hap, notice that word, was to light upon, light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. That word hap just means the, by chance. So Ruth's just going to glean. She's trying to get some food, trying to get things together. And just by chance, where does she end up? In the field of Boaz. Now, we know how all this is going to turn out. Ruth had no idea. She was just there by chance. But chance is God's domain. Look at uh, Esther, right before Job. Chapter number 6, verse 1. 
Esther chapter 6, verse 1. In that night, on that night, uh, could not the king sleep? And he commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Tiresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor and dignity hath been done to Mordecai for this? Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, There is nothing done for him. And the king said, Who is, who is in the court? Now Haman was come into the outward court of the king's house to speak unto the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. It just so happened at that moment Haman was coming in. And it just also so happened at the very same moment that the king couldn't sleep. And it just also happened that when the king couldn't sleep, the chronicles were read. He was trying to count sheep because that's pretty boring. And the chronicles were read. And it just so happened that the chronicle that was being read was the chronicle about what Mordecai had done to save the king's life. God is in the chance. God is in the chance. Then, of course, I could mention Jonah chapter 1. Remember the shipmen, they cast lots and, uh, to find out whose fault it is that there's this big storm and the, the lot falls upon Jonah. Random chance. Look at Matthew chapter 10, if you would. Verse 29. Of course, this passage is mainly dealing with the value of a person, but look at what it says. There's a little phrase in here that I think is interesting. Matthew 10, 29, our Lord says, Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. A pharaoh, a sparrow falling on the ground, just a random thing. To us, to our eyes, to our experience, it's just a random, just happens. We don't, we, we don't even give those things two thoughts. We don't wonder why or how or when. We just, it's just part of life. And the Lord says, all those little things that mean nothing to us, God knows it and sees it. This chance is the realm of God. So when these, that this is, look, we don't have to understand why things happen, the way they happen, and when they happen. Truth is, you're never going to know. Job never found out what, why, why whatever happened happened to him. He never found out. We will not always know, but we trust that especially because we are children of God, that the things that happen by chance are things that God has orchestrated for us. We trust Him. We trust Him. And then finally, going back to Acts 1, they cast their lots. The lot fell upon Matthias. They knowing that chance is the domain of God had this means, this, this drawing in essence, but they committed the very drawing to God. God, this is your domain. We have no idea who the right person is. Lord, you pick. And it, they commit random chance to God. I love it because it's an act of faith, even in chance. 
And the Lord picks Matthias. And they so believed it was God's will because verse 26 say, and they gave forth their lots, lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. In other words, they took that as this is God's will. This is God's will. And oftentimes we do well when we take things in chance as God's will. We can do that. We can do that. Now, this matter, just, just as a reminder, there was no moral choice about right or wrong, sin and evil in this question. This, that, that, that is not what's in view here. If there had been a verse of Scripture that was, like for instance, if Matthias or, or this man Justice had, had some sort of moral fault or something that disqualified him from this place, and there was a Scripture that applied to that, then had they cast lots, that would have been wrong. Because there would have been a Scripture, a clear uh, explanation of what God wanted, but there wasn't. There wasn't. You know, sometimes we think, well, whatever God wants, you know, we just, you know, we, we do a drawing about something, you know, should I marry her, should I marry her? Well, she's a believer and she's not. Well, then you ought to be, you ought be, not be casting lots, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's not, it's not chance in that case. And I'm not necessarily suggesting you should cast lots. There are other biblical ways to determine the will of God. I'm just saying, what they did was an act of faith. And so finally, what you have to close is the answer to the question is, was Matthias actually one of the 12 apostles or was it supposed to be Paul? And the answer is, it was Matthias. Look at Acts chapter 2. We'll look at three more passages very quickly and we'll be finished. Acts 2, verse number 14. But Peter... Standing up with what? What's it say? The 11. Peter plus 11 is 12. That must include Matthias. All right, look at chapter 6. Verse 2. What's it say? Then called the 11? No. The twelve. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them. Notice that? The twelve, are, their number is complete. They call it what? Administrative completeness, the number twelve. The number is complete. But it's cited by the Holy Spirit as twelve. All right? Lastly is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look at that and we'll be done. 1 Corinthians 15, verse now remember, Acts 2, what we just read, Acts 6, what we just read, Paul hadn't even been saved yet. <laughs> there are 12 before Paul was even saved, all right? Then we get to 1 Corinthians 15, lest there be any doubt at all. Verse number, uh, verse number 4, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he, Jesus, was seen of Cephas, then of the 12. Well, hold on, that's Judas. No, Judas is dead. By the time the resurrection happens, Judas is dead. So who is the 12th? Now, Matthias, at this point, when they saw the resurrected Christ, had not been selected, but he was there because that was one of the requirements, remember? So that's referring to Matthias. So without any doubt, Matthias is actually the 12th apostle. They found it and they discerned God's will in a scriptural way by the Scripture, by prayer, and by faith. You know, that's a, 
Scripture, prayer, faith. Scripture, prayer, faith. Scripture, prayer, faith. Those three things, that's a good, uh, a good way to determine God's will for us as well in 2023, I would say. Let's pray.